It's 835, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. All right, early yesterday afternoon, a Milwaukee County jury returns a verdict of not guilty in the prosecution of former Milwaukee police officer Dominic Hagen-Brown. The uh, This was a case brought by District Attorney John Chisholm, tried by District Attorney John Chisholm. So what happened? Now, when I look at prosecutions that go bad, and this is from the perspective of, of a former prosecutor, the, the reality is that I think every time a prosecutor brings a case, the prosecutor should win the case. You're the one that chooses to bring the case. You're the one that evaluates the case. You're the one that assesses the evidence. So what happens when a prosecutor loses a case? And generally speaking, there, there's three reasons for it. Reason number one would be that you just, it's a, stuff goes wrong in the trial. You get a squirrely jury or a squirrely judge. I mean, that, that happens. That happens sometimes. You can present, you can present the case in the best way possible, and sometimes you just get strange juries who, for whatever reason, get distracted on weird stuff or take their eye off the prize. And so that, that, that's what happens sometimes. It's not your fault. You bring the case, you let the chips fall where they may, and this, the jury just flat out gets it wrong. That happens on occasion. Reason number two that a case can go bad is the fact that um, the case should never have been brought in the first place. And reason number three that you lose a case is that you screw up during the presentation of the trial. Let's talk about reason number three. I mean, sometimes what happens is you're presenting the evidence that you have and I don't know, a witness goes completely south. You know, somebody that's told you one thing, reverses, recants on the witness stand, gives you a problem. You know, there's nothing that you can do. You went into the trial thinking this person was going to say this and that and the other thing. They didn't, and and your case, you know, ends up getting flushed. That's reason number two. And then reason number three is that the case, like I say, should not be brought in the first place. This trial and this prosecution is a clear example of reason, in my opinion, reason number three. It should never have been brought in the first place. And in my opinion, no responsible prosecutor would have ever brought this case in the first place. Now, everybody knows the facts. Here you have a situation where you have a Milwaukee police officer, any Milwaukee police officer, you are on patrol. You see what appears to be a drug deal going down. You tell the people to stop. You go to investigate, and in this case, the, the victim, we'll use that term in quotation marks, Saldell Smith, takes off, starts running. He displays a gun. He turns at one point in time to arguably point the gun at the officer, and in this case, the police officer, in the matter of less than two seconds, fires two shots. Boom, boom. The district attorney understand, comes out and acknowledges the first shot was completely legitimate. No question about it. You have an armed suspect who is turning, arguably, to potentially confront the police officer. Clearly, it is a reasonable use of deadly force under those circumstances. Boom. This trial was based on that second shot coming 1.7 seconds approximately after the first one. Boom, boom. It is that second boom. And this is the district attorney who decides, I want to take this body camera thing, I want to break it down frame by frame to try to suggest that this officer 
in the heat of the moment, in less than two seconds, first shot was legitimate, second shot was not. This was a prosecution that never, ever, ever had any chance of succeeding. It was a prosecution in a case that screamed reasonable doubt from the outset. So why was this prosecution brought? Well, in my opinion, it was brought because of politics, pure and simple. Keep in mind that after this incident occurred, you had the riots in Sherman Park. Frankly, I don't believe that this shooting really had anything to do with setting off the riots at Sherman Park. There had been problems at Sherman Park for quite a while. There had been incidents at that gas station that ended up getting burned down. Matter of fact, I drove by it just just the other day. Um, It had been going on for a while. This, I think, was just an excuse that people used who were looking to engage in violence and looking to burn and looking to loot. This was the excuse. And so you you had this prosecution. And unfortunately, rather than the district attorney, at least in my opinion, standing up and doing his job and saying, look, um, there's not enough evidence to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that this was uh, this was a 40 year felony. Rather than do that, the district attorney tried to take what I think is the coward's way out that never, ever works. It didn't work when they did it in Florida. It didn't work when they did it in Baltimore. And it didn't work when Chisholm tried to do it, where you simply say, well, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to. This is the think, thought process. I don't want to take the heat for saying there's no evidence. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring a case that I have no chance of winning, but I'm just going to put it out there, and if the jury decides to acquit him, well, the jury decided to acquit him, then nobody can blame me, at least I tried. That is exactly what I think happened, and that is not what a district attorney, in my opinion, is supposed to do. So now you have the verdict. It is not surprising. This case screamed reasonable doubt. You have the surviving family members of the victim in this case who had a lengthy criminal lengthy i guess the best way to say it was be a lengthy series of contacts with the police um some serious charges no convictions of any magnitude but it's very very clear that this young man was on the wrong path which is what led him into that situation in sherman park in the first place so now you have the family that is bringing a civil rights lawsuit filed it filed it before the ink on the not guilty verdict was, in fact, dry, and they will be seeking a large payout. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let me just kind of cut to the chase here. This was a prosecution that should never have been brought. It reflects, I, I think, on the lack of judgment that John Chisholm, the district attorney, had. To his credit, he didn't send some assistant DA in to try this case. He tried it himself. Um, but this is a stinging rebuke of him. And it's not so much the way they tried the case, in my opinion. It is the judgment that he used or lack of judgment in bringing the case in the first place. That's number one. Number two, the jury got this completely and totally right. This was never, ever, ever a prosecution that had any merit at all. And number three, the family now, and it's a different standard. I mean, you have to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt um, in a criminal case. The family now filing a civil rights lawsuit against the individual police officer and the Milwaukee Police Department seeking a big payday. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. The jury got it right. Chisholm got it wrong. And a new lawsuit against the taxpayers of the city of Milwaukee. I have some thoughts about where that is going to go. What do you think? Any aspect of this story, we open up the phone lines. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We are back to discuss next. It's 843. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. 
846, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Okay, in reaction to the verdict, um, Ed Flynn, and we have not always agreed, but Ed Flynn said what he's been saying all along. The verdict was based on objective evidence before it. He says, a year ago, I told the public I had seen nothing in the video that was a violation of the law or the policy. The jury saw the same evidence and came to the same conclusion. Mark the tape on this. The police chief is absolutely right. And it is unfortunate that the district attorney decided politics was more important than what I believe was his ethical responsibility to a fairly and objectively evaluate a case and not bring a case that he really had no chance of winning. But while the police chief's comments were responsible, some of the people, and again, if you want to understand why we have problems in the city of Milwaukee, it is because of some of the people who are elected. Here is the statement from State Senator Latanya Johnson who represents Milwaukee. Here's what she says. I share my community's frustration and continue to be saddened by the tragic loss of life and lack of justice we are all too familiar with in Milwaukee. Lack of justice we are all too familiar with in Milwaukee. Wait a second. Wait a second. Latanya Johnson, justice is not a lynch mob. Justice is exactly what happened in that courtroom. Justice isn't, gee, you have somebody who is fleeing from the cops with a gun and gets shot. Let's automatically hang the police officer. That is not justice. Justice is you present the evidence in a court of law, and then you allow citizens to decide whether or not a person is guilty or not guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. This was a case that should never have been brought. But all the evidence they had came in. They presented this evidence, and a jury looked at it and said, no, there's no basis to find this man guilty. So this idea that there's a lack of justice that we're all too familiar with in Milwaukee, that is ridiculous. It is absurd, and it is irresponsible for elected officials, in this case like State Senator Latanya Johnson, to be saying, this is a lack of justice we're all too familiar with in Milwaukee. No, this was a case where justice was done. And if you want to talk about a lack of justice, it would be in bringing these charges in the first place. And now the family wants money. I hope, I hope, based on this and based on the jury's verdict, And based on the evidence that came out on trial and based on, in this case, the police chief's opinions that, hey, there was nothing that was done that was out of policy, I hope this is a situation where we do not, unlike what happened in other recent cases, we do not have... I don't know, somebody that just caves in and decides, here, we want to pay out hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars to family members and to lawyers in order to make this go away. You want to talk about a lack of justice. In my opinion, in this case, paying out a big civil rights settlement would be the epitome of a lack of justice. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Mike in Milwaukee. Mike, good morning. You're at 620 WTMJ. Mike. On the civil judgment, but I think this whole case was outrageous in that this guy was charged. Everyone said, even the police chief, they fired him, but they said he didn't violate the law. And um, now he's had to pay a lot of money to be represented yep. in a case that should have never been brought. And I, I think prosecutors have to bring 
can only bring a case if they believe they have enough evidence to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. And I don't know anybody who thought there was evidence beyond a reasonable doubt to convict this guy. Well, I mean, so, there, there is the eth- I mean, thanks. I mean, there is there is the ethical concern. I, I believe as a prosecutor that it is unethical to bring a case that you do not have, that you, you don't believe you can prove beyond a reasonable doubt. You know, to, to bring a case, all you need is, is again, the, this, the preponderance of, of the evidence. You know, that gets you through the, the preliminary hearing. But as a prosecutor, I just think it is irresponsible, and I believe it's unethical, to say, well, okay, um, we're just going to, we don't think that we've got enough evidence, we're going to try it. Now, the, the practical matter is you, you can never prove that. I mean, John Chisholm will say, well, I thought I could get a conviction. That's what he said. I thought I could get a conviction, you know, based on the video. Well, all right, he he couldn't, and I don't think any reasonable person thought that he could do it. Um, So you're never going to be able to, like, formally bring ethics charges or something against him. But to me, it was either incredibly bad judgment or it was, again, a political prosecution, and I candidly think it's it's the um, I candidly think it's the latter. Um, Andy sends us a text in Waukesha. She says, I agree with you. It should never have been charged. Chisholm um, has no guts and is bending over backwards to appease certain elements in the community. God help us. The jury did not. The jury did the right thing. I agree. The police officer is not a model person himself, but now the family has some ammo for a payout. Um, what a joke. Um, yeah, well, that's that's part of the problem, you know, that's part of the problem, too. It is unfortunate that this guy lost his life, all right? There, there's no question about it. Um, you, you look at his criminal history, and while there aren't a lot of convictions, you know, in one case, there were charges that were dropped when a victim, including witness intimidation, when a victim refused to cooperate with law enforcement. I mean, this... <sighs> He was involved in a sketchy situation to begin with. We don't have the death penalty for things like that. But the truth of the matter is you had somebody who was armed, who was clearly doing something that he should not be supposed to have done, which is why I believe he ran from the police in the first place, and then got himself into this particular situation. No police officer wakes up in a given morning saying, gee, I hope today, I hope today is the day I, I get to run through the inner city, you know, chasing an armed suspect who might turn and shoot at me at any moment. I, I, that's just not the way these things operate. I understand, and in some respects, I, I think the district attorney, felt that this might be this might be a free prosecution in some respects because again the officer Dominic Hagan Brown um, was ultimately later on got involved in his own problems and you know he's facing other charges as well independent of what he did in this particular situation so maybe the thinking was okay this isn't going to be anybody that the police are necessarily going to rally around well if that was Chisholm's judgment it was extremely bad judgment because when he put Hagen Brown on trial for doing what Hagen Brown did he sends a message to every law enforcement member in Milwaukee County that the district attorney is not going to have their backs and that the district attorney if there's a political issue the district attorney is going to be willing to issue charges he will sell out law enforcement in order to again appease certain other constituencies and I I say that because I just don't think any responsible prosecutor could have evaluated this evidence and made the decision that you thought you could get a conviction I have always said that if you show me a prosecutor who's never lost the case I'll show you somebody who's not trying the tough ones. And I have no objection to trying tough ones. I, I, I don't. But this wasn't this wasn't a tough one. 
This just wasn't. This was a case that should have never been brought in the first place, and pretty much everybody knew it. I believe also the district attorney. Where this goes now in the civil lawsuit, well, you hope Milwaukee County fights this. You hope they say, look, this is not something where you get to win the legal lottery. Um, John Chisholm's prosecution might, again, complicate the defense of it, um, in which case, if there's a big payout, Again, you know where to put that. You put it squarely on the back of the prosecutor who should have never brought this case in the first place. It's 854. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Coming up next, big thing number two. All right, we turn from the city of Milwaukee to a small, smaller town to our north, Green Bay. Is it time to finally say, when we say character counts, we mean it? Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. The Bucks are picking up what they hope will be the next pieces to a championship puzzle in tonight's NBA draft. Our Bucks insider, Justin Garcia, looks at the best first-round options for the team. Check out his picks in the Bucks section of WTMJ.com. Justin always does a good, eye, good job. We are right in the middle of our three big things. Uh, big thing number two comes from the world of sports. Most people are able to go through their entire lives without having any significant contact with law enforcement. I mean, maybe you get a speeding ticket here or there, but but that's generally that's how most people go through their lives. There's most people, and then there's some privileged professional athletes. Will the Green Bay Packers have the guts to say, enough is enough? We discuss next. It's 859. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 908. This is Jeff Wagner. Big thing number two. This is a bad time. For NFL general managers, because th- this is one of their most dangerous times of the year, because there, what happens is their like mini camps and their OTAs or whatever are now over, and training camp doesn't start for about five weeks, and so all their players really are not under supervision for the, these next five weeks. So every time a general manager's phone rings, particularly in the middle of the night, that the thought is. Okay, who was it, and what did they end up doing? That, that's just, it's kind of like oh my gosh, because you take a bunch of players, some of which who, some of whom, not all, but some of whom have a ton of money and the impulse control of fruit flies, and who have led privileged existences, and you send them out into the world, and gee, bad things can end up happening. The Green Bay Packers have always prided themselves, and I, look, I'm an enormous Packers fan. The Green Bay Packers have always prided themselves about being different than some teams in the NFL that is not taking on character risks um, but yet from time to time they do take on character risks now I bring this up because the breaking news story is Packers defensive tackle nose tackle Latroy Guyon was arrested yesterday in Hawaii and charged with driving under the influence. Honolulu police say Guyon was pulled over at 4.20 a.m. Honolulu time Hmm. During a routine traffic stop, police reported that he was found to have a blood alcohol level of .086. All right, so he's slightly over the legal limit. And you might say, okay, Jeff, well, what, what's the big deal? I mean, people have too much to drink from time to time, and it's it's not like he hit and killed anybody, and he didn't run from the police or anything like that. It appears to be a sort of straightforward drunk driving thing. The Packers, for their part, say that uh, they're aware of the matter involving him, and they'll refrain from making any further comment as it is an ongoing legal matter. All right. Well, if this were 
just your first time at the rodeo, uh, it, it, you might say, okay, well, it, you know, drunk driving, it's not a good thing. It can happen to anybody. You just, though, kind of let let this play through, you know, what's what's happening and see where it, where it rises. This, of course, is not Latroy Guyon's first time at the rodeo. Uh, this is the way the Journal Sentinel reported on his background. And this was a very controversial article. The Packers were not happy that uh, the reporters wrote this article. Let me just share a portion of it with you. In the hours after Latroy Guyon, same guy who got picked up the other night for drunk driving, was taken to a Florida jail on February 3rd, 2015, after the odor of marijuana and plumes of smoke prompted a search of his 2015 Dodge Ram during a traffic stop for swerving across the center line, after he was handcuffed for turning hostile as officers found a gun, three-quarters of a pound of pot, and $190,000 in cash, Guyon's father stood outside the Stark Police Department. Latroy Guyon Sr. was greeted by two of the officers who recognized him based on his past dealings with the department. All right, free legal advice from a recovering attorney. You never want to be in a situation that you are on a first-name basis with the cops because... Not because you're a great upstanding member of the community, not because you know you're one of the big donors to like the police charities, but because of your past dealings with the department that included a string of seven cocaine convictions, most of them for dealing. Oh, this is our thing. Okay. Um, the dad asked the officers about the charges being brought against his son, a defensive lineman for the Green Bay Packers. They explained that guy in 28 at the time was facing two felonies for marijuana possession and a gun charge. The dad laughed. And according to the arrest report said, well, I'll be honest, every time he comes down here, he always brings the best weed you ever smoked in your life. A Milwaukee Journal Sentinel review of more than 300 pages of court documents and police records dating back six years, along with interviews of Florida attorneys, prosecutors and experts, show a high profile athlete entangled by years of legal issues that at times have threatened his professional football career or not. Before the drug and gun counts, Guyon had been charged in criminal cases three times. This includes a stalking charge, a pair of domestic violence incidents resulted in three counts of battery, including one where he was charged with hitting the mother of his child in the jaw. The charges were dropped in two of the criminal cases. He paid restitution in the third and avoided additional punishment. For the February traffic stop, this is February of 2015. Guyon ultimately pleaded no contest to possession of marijuana and paid a $5,000 fine. The charge of having a gun while committing a felony was dropped, and based on the terms of the plea deal, Guyon again avoided um, conviction on his record. Legal experts in Florida, as well as the Stark City attorney, say Guyon received a break on the drug and gun charges given his history in the justice system system. A Stark police sergeant said in a deposition that informants told authorities Guyon was involved in the drug trade and bankrolled dealers, some of whom were his relatives. Uh, the drugs sold included marijuana, cocaine, and crack cocaine, according to the deposition in the forfeiture case. Um, based on this situation, now let me just stop for a second here. I feel reasonably confident in saying that if pretty much anybody else even without a criminal record, had been caught in a small town in Florida with a handgun, $190,000 in cash, and three-quarters of a pound of pot, 
um, it would not have been a $5,000 fine and sent on your way avoiding a criminal conviction. But, of course, this is a famous athlete, and that's the athlete rules. Well, based on that, based on that, he was suspended for three games. Um, after this season, he tested positive for performance-enhancing drugs. So he's looking at a four-game suspension to start the year, this year. And now, now he's been arrested for drunk driving. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. I, I, everything I read tells me that the guy still has some good football in him. And also says that, hey, you know, he's he's a great guy in the locker room. That Lots of his uh, fellow players like him. At the same time, he is a thug. There's just, there's just no question about it. He is, he's a thug. And he's a guy who continues to find himself involved in various violations of the law. So, big story number two, 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. How can the Packers bring this guy back? I mean, if you are going to seriously say that character matters, how many chances do we give professional athletes? Now, I understand under a normal circumstance, I would not be doing this topic if this was just a, a drunk driving conviction, a drunk driving arrest. You'd say, OK, that's unfortunate. Um, what, you know, when, when you're an NFL player and you're making all this money, you're an NBA player, you're a Major League Baseball player. Why are you behind the wheel of a car, you know, at four o'clock in the morning? Just have somebody drive. OK, that, that's what I would normally be saying. But we are not writing on a blank slate. So should the Packers at this point in time, he's looking at a four game suspension. He's got the drunk driving thing. He's got this history. Should they finally stand up and say enough is enough or do we look the other way? Does it not matter what he does outside the lines if he's still able to contribute to the team? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I, I say drop him. Troy in Door County. Troy, you're first. Good morning. Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. I remember calling two months ago, <laughs> your show or night show, and when he had those uh, performance enhancing drugs, and I said, what, what are they wasting their time about him for? I just don't understand that. Uh, you know, I'm a school teacher, and, and I and I work hard for my paycheck. And this guy can can make a equivalent to what I make in a uh, a lifetime. That that guy can make in a, in a season or two, and he just continues to screw up. He needs help, and and we can't afford to get in the behind the, the eight ball here the first three or four games every year with this guy because he's not playing. And I just say. Drop it. Set right. a statement. Drop it. That's right. it. Right. I think. I see. I, I, again. I'm. I'm with you. At some point in time, you know, you have to give more than lip service to the idea that that character counts. And again, I. I. If, if this. If this was just okay, somebody got nailed for drunk driving. Does that mean you think that you know you should void contracts and you know and and dump people just because it's drunk driving? No. My answer would be no. Of course not. I don't believe that. But when you have patterns, when you have people that are continually and constantly in trouble, in all honesty, I mean, I think personally the Packers made a huge mistake in not dropping this guy the first time. I mean, this they could have stood up and they could have said, look, this we want to send a message. I understand that's a cliche, but they could have come up and said, you know, we want to send a message. We want to do more than give lip service to the idea that character counts. And, you know, we're not going to tolerate people you know, driving around and smoking dope and, you know, carrying guns. That is not the type of player that we want on our team. That is not the type of image that we want the Green Bay Packers to have. They could have done that. 
Apparently, they chose not to do it because they wanted to give this guy a second or a third or a fourth chance. And you look at this description in the Journal Sentinel, and you understand that one of the reasons why this guy continues to misbehave is because as a as a professional athlete, he's been given chance after chance after chance. Um, because we have two standards of justice in this world, one for most people and one for people of you know, privileged athletes. Because, again, I go back to what I said earlier. You will never, ever, ever, ever convince me that if this was some other guy from that community who got caught under these circumstances with this sort of criminal record and criminal history of con- criminal contacts and got caught – you know, with with three quarters of a pound of pot and a handgun and all that money, sw- you know, swerving in a car, there's no way that this case would have been disposed of in that fashion. So this, I think, is a real character check for the Packers, and it's an opportunity for them to, you know, really decide. All right, do you get to a point where somebody's behavior outside of football? just rises to a level that it's not worth the trouble anymore, and it's unfortunate. But but look, this guy is trouble. And if somebody other team wants to give him a chance, that's fine. But maybe the Packers need to stand up and say, you know, when we say character counts, we mean it. It's 922, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. He's already suspended the first four games of the season for violating the league's PED policy. And now Packers Latroy Guyon has been arrested for drunk driving. We just talked about that. Do you think his off-field issue should be enough for the team to cut bait? Where do you draw the line? Weigh in during Scafidi and Billstad at 12.15 this afternoon. Like I said, if, if I was me, if it was me and I was running a football team, I would have drawn the line two years ago when he got busted with $190,000 in cash a loaded handgun, and you talk to the police and you find out that this is this guy has been nothing but trouble essentially since he was a young man. <laughs> when the father comes down and the father says, hey, I'll be honest with you, every time he comes here, he's got the best weed around. If I was the general manager of the Packers or the ownership, if I was uh, Murphy, I would have just simply said, okay, that, that's all I, I need to hear. And even if he can play defensive tackle, you know what? We want to make a statement that maybe maybe we're not the Cowboys. Maybe we're not the Cowboys. And a number of people are making the point on the text line, and they're right. The sad truth is um, somebody in the NFL, if they think he can play, they will, they'll will they pick him up, and they'll use him till he can't play, and then they'll send him on his way, and he'll be an ordinary person, and he'll you know end up finally uh, – end up finally he'll either turn his life around or he'll end up in in prison one of one of the two you hope certainly it's the former but you you just don't know all right big story number 3 another health insurer drops out of Wisconsin's Obamacare markets now, i think everybody knows the way this works most people either get their insurance if you're 65 or older you you get your insurance through um you, you're on you're on Medicare. Most people get their insurance through their employers, but for the people who don't fit into one of those two categories, you now get your insurance thanks to the Affordable Care Act, thanks to Obamacare, through one of these Obamacare exchanges. Now, you all remember the big lie: if you want, if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. If you like uh, your health plan, you can keep your health plan. No, that 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 was the big lie. It didn't happen. Because what has occurred is you have all these different health insurance companies who operate on these exchanges that you can participate in um, who've recognized that the way Obamacare is 
set up, they can't make money. They lose money hand over fist. And so as a result, they are deciding not to participate, and they're pulling out of these exchanges. Um, already, the, the big some of the big insurers, the big nationwide insurers that have operated in Wisconsin, um, for example, United Healthcare would be one of them. Um, Humana is another. They don't participate in the exchanges. So, um, I, actually, we're our insurance right now is through United Healthcare, and I've got a. I, I'm very very happy with the plan that we have at Scripps. It gives you all sorts of choices. I can choose what network I, I want to be in. I can pick. I have a wide variety of choices as to you know. Do, do you want to? If you need something, do you want to be at Freighter? Do you want to be in the Aurora system? You know, do you want to be at Columbia St. Mary's? We have a variety of choices. That's all part of the network. If if you, however, are covered under the Affordable Care Act, you do not, as a general rule, have those choices. Because normally these insurance companies, first of all, a lot of them have pulled out because they can't make money. And those that have stayed offer, well, limited choices. Limited choices as to what plan you can participate in, what network you can be in. Matter of fact, for some of the policies, that there are essentially no choices at all. If you want to, you know, have insurance, your only choice is you have to be at, you know, through X network, whether it's Aurora. Most of the times it's Aurora, but sometimes it's others as well. But you don't, you have insurance, but you don't have the choices that everybody else has. But what's happening is, again, because you can't make money at this, more and more people are pulling out. In some states, Wisconsin is not at this point yet, but in some states, there are no insurers that want to participate in the markets. There's none because what they found over the last few years is, again, the payouts that they are having are having to make are so much greater than the money that's coming in that they are losing enormous quantities of money and insurers, insurance companies you know, can't lose money for, forever. So they are pulling out. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. To me, this is the clearest and example possible of the fact that Obamacare is crumbling and that something needs to be done to change it. Now, I don't know, I, we don't have, nobody knows the details that are going to be in the Senate health care bill that's going to be, you know, rolled out probably sometime today. You have the House health care bill that was controversial and isn't clearly perfect. But the system as it is working now isn't functioning properly, and it is, in fact, cratering. And the latest example, uh, again, was where, where Anthem decides that they're pulling out of the Obamacare markets. Now, Anthem isn't pulling out of other insurance markets. So, I mean, if you have, like, your Medicare Advantage plans through them, okay, that you don't have to worry about that. This is just exclusively for the Affordable Care Act. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think we desperately need to do something. There are a lot of people out there that think, oh, we, we've got to just maintain the status quo. Status quo is fine. Look at all the people who are getting insurance. No, look at what is happening now out in the real world. And for those of you who are covered under the Affordable Care Act, I think it is just completely and totally unsustainable, and something needs to be done. All right, do we just keep going along the way we've been going, or do we need major changes? What do you think? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We are back to discuss. It's 928. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 
935, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Okay, Anthem announces yesterday that it is going to join other major insurers like Humana and United Healthcare in not participating in insurance exchanges, the Obamacare exchanges in Wisconsin. Um, they're also pulling out in Indiana. In Wisconsin, you're still there's still going to be insurers that you can get insurance from, but your, your choices continue to be more and more limited. Anthem isn't pulling out of like their Medicare Advantage programs. This is exclusively the Affordable Care Act, but it's yet another example of how Obamacare is cratering. Rich on the east side. Rich, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Hey. Thanks, Jeff, for taking my call. Yes, sir. I appreciate that. Um, I'm, I'm concerned at the speed at which, at which uh, this uh, repeal is going at. Um, I, I, you know, without getting into the nuts and bolts, um, it seems as though there were there was a lot more time, there was a lot more time with the uh, Obamacare. There was a lot more uh, opportunities for people to amend it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were more open hearings. The speed concerns me, um, and and I try to look at this objectively, not as a Republican or a Democrat, right. um, just as an American. Well, I, and, let, uh, me, let me let me let me just finish. I want to finish here. I, I've been hearing a lot about how uh, Medicaid, and there's a lot of people out there with two jobs mm-hmm. that are still considered as working poor that are going to be hit really hard. And uh, the, the people that are making uh, a benefit here, uh, there's a tax cut for the uh, the, the rich. Well, what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to see the details that come out in, in the Senate plan. And I understand there's this idea of class warfare that's here, but here's the bottom line. Right now, the taxpayers already pay 7B, as in billion dollars, in an effort to try to prop up these insurance, these, these insurance, these Obamacare markets. That's not enough to get the job done. So, you know, now they want more and more and more because what's happened is the way Obamacare ha- has been set up is you have, I mean, the way insurance works is you need a bunch of healthy people who are participating and paying in premiums so that they're paying enough in premiums so that when you get the sick people, you know, they can get their insurance coverage and there's going to be enough money left over for the insurers to make a little bit of a profit. That That's the simple way that this works. Under Obamacare, what's happened is because the premiums have been set artificially low, because you have the issue of pre-existing conditions where people continue, you can... You can sign up. You cannot participate in the insurance market. You can pay minimal fines. And then once you get sick, within six months or a year, depending on when you get the catastrophic diagnosis, you can just latch on and then you can get insurance coverage. That's ended up you know, driving a lot of the insurers out of the market because they're paying out more than they have coming in. That is an unsustainable sort of system. And, and that's what has to be addressed. And that's what's not being addressed. Now, let's talk to Bill and Racine. Bill, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I really have, uh, I, I, I feel a lot like the last guy where I'm trying to look at this very objectively. I, I would, I'm sure, I, I would love to have everybody insured too, you know, but I, I don't, I'm not a financial person. I don't know what it would take to do this, but I do like there are certain things that sit in my crawl, like Nancy Pelosi say, sign it and then read it later. You know, right. and and I mean that's just to me to this day 
never leaves my mind. Uh, but I do know that, I mean, a lot of this stuff is going to be out of our control if these people drop out of the system. Uh, no matter what, we're going to be, we're going to be caught with it the way it is. And basically it's, uh, we're going towards socialism. That's exactly where we're going, which is, would be fine with me if it would work. You know, but I don't see financially how it's going to work unless we take money from the military. And, try, and well, I don't know how much right. that would take. Right. Well, let me, I mean, I mean right. I, I see, I think, look, I, I, I'm not one of these guys wearing the tinfoil hats with the big conspiracy theories. But as I've been saying for all along, I, I think that the people who designed Obamacare knew that this was going to happen. They knew that this would fail. It was destined to fail. And what they really wanted to do is push us towards like a, a Canadian system like the, this with the single payer. Where you no longer have insurance, where the governor, government becomes the insurance company, and the government decides what health care providers are going to be paid, and we all pay into the government, and then you know we, we get our insurance through them, and there's no difference. Everybody is treated the, the same way. Um, the problem, of course, is if you talk to anybody who's been in the Canadian system, or at least most people, they'll tell you it just doesn't work. I mean, do you do you want to wait six months for? I don't know. You've got a kidney stone. Do you want to wait six or seven months to have that kidney stone treated? Uh, Lord forbid, if you're ever involved in some sort of catastrophic situation, that's why you have a lot of wealthy Canadians who come to the United States to end up getting their treatment. On top of that, the estimates for a single-payer system to blow up what we have. See, and here's the bottom line. I think most people, not all, but most people are happy with their health insurance. Now, look, nobody wants to get sick, and nobody likes to be paying anything. But for for people who, for example, get their health insurance through their employer, I think most people are relatively relatively satisfied with that. I think most people who get their insurance, you know, again, through, again, Medicare, they're relatively satisfied with that. So to completely and totally blow up the system, for a comparatively small number of people, the ones that don't get their insurance through their employers or on a Medicare, to me makes absolutely no sense a- at all. You have to figure out a better way to do it. Single payer, the estimates are it would cost about 30 to the last one I saw, I think $32 trillion, T as in trillion dollars to implement. And that means massive, massive taxes on every man, woman, and child in this country. Um, and I just don't, frankly, see that happening. We've got, um, let's see, uh, let's see. Um, Josh in New Berlin writes, as an economist, one of the things I see several things wrong that have to be changed. First, the ACA violates adverse selection. More people who were unacceptable risks aren't charged more for their higher use. Yes. Second, the law of large numbers would say abolishing all state regulation systems would drop prices significantly. Third, even without state regulations, health care providers have high fixed costs, malpractice insurance, etc. Yeah, these are all these factors, um, but it's always been, I think, intended to to fail. And I appreciate there might be some people who are on the Affordable Care Act who, uh, okay, um, weren't on it before or have because you've got the government subsidies the seven billion dollars that we pay out it now makes it more affordable and i appreciate that and i understand for those people that there is a value but the truth of the matter is the obamacare system as it exists now 
is not going to be here in a couple years because more and more insurers are dropping out. And like I say, there's already some states, and we'll have a better count on this by next week, there's already some states, for example, like Iowa, um, where there's not going to be an insurer that participates. You're not going to have any choices at all. And if you want to figure out how you really reduce insurance premiums, it is through competition. It's through, you know, having alternatives. It's like, in some respects, it's like buying a car. Okay, um, you know, I, I want X car, and now I can go to different dealerships, and I can see who gives me the best deal in those cars. When you only have one insurance company that's participating in a market, that insurance company gets to say, no, we're not going to give you a choice of different networks. You know, we're you're not going to have a choice between freighters and between Columbia St. Mary's and between Aurora. You're, you're not going to be able to do that. You're going to have to take whichever one we give you, and you're going to have to like it. 944, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Nine forty-seven. Jeff Wagner, six twenty. WTMJ. Paul in Hartford texts: If single-payer health care is so bad, why do the liberals want it so bad? Because it is a step towards socialized medicine. It is a step towards the big government. We, the idea that the government will provide everything for you from cradle to grave. The idea that we have haves and have-nots in this world and that you shouldn't be able to have choices, that somebody who is a multimillionaire shouldn't be able to spend and have access to better health care or more options than somebody who isn't as, as wealthy. So this idea is we're going to it's, – it's the socialized socialism. We're going to treat everybody the same. And that's why, and again, it, it's like any sort of entitlement program. It is why what they are so, trying to do right now in Congress is so very difficult because I don't believe, and I, I, I've said this before, and I don't think I've been corrected. Once you have an entitlement program in this country that has been put into place, it has never, ever been repealed because you have exactly the same discussion that's going on now. Oh, my goodness. You know, now that now that, you know, everybody has access to health care, even though it's not necessarily affordable and it's limited choices. You, you can't go back on that now. We can never take that away because once the government starts giving something to some people, you can't ever roll it back. So the single answer is simple answer is why do Democrats, why do big government liberals want single payer it's because again it's another thing that gets you closer to the ultimate nanny state where we now don't have individual choices the government takes care of everything and we all end up paying for it 32 trillion dollars to give you an idea california is considering single trillion single payer health care um so you would no longer you know if you worked at a company in california you would no longer get your insurance through that company it's not just for it wouldn't just be for people who didn't have access to health insurance otherwise it would be for everybody your health your employers would no longer offer health insurance but you and your employers would pay massive taxes to help underwrite this and even in california where their governor is moonbeam jerry brown he's balking it at it because he recognizes that the cost of blowing up the system would be absolutely totally prohibited all right um Yesterday, the state assembly, I think maybe it might have been earlier this morning, took up an election reform bill. If you will, you will remember that after the the presidential election last November, you had one of the minor candidates, uh, you know, Jill Stein, 
Green Party candidate who got just absolutely, you know, drubbed in the race. You had in the election, you had you know Donald Trump who won Wisconsin by a very, very narrow margin. Then you had Hillary Clinton coming in. You know, she ran second, and then you had Jill Stein who came in, and Jill Stein demanded a recount. Now, in Wisconsin, the way the law works is if you are very, very close, if it's within like one percentage point or something like that, you know, you can demand a recount and you can do it at no expense. The way the law works now, though, is that any candidate can come in and as long as they are willing to foot the bill, they can demand a recount. So you will remember Jill Stein raised millions of dollars saying we, we want to have a recount. And the reality was that you could have recounted the votes until the cows came home, and Jill Stein would not have won Wisconsin. There was, there was no way that Jill Stein would have ever won Wisconsin. So um, what happened is this legislation would say that, you know, in order to be able to demand a recount, essentially you have to you have to be close enough so that the chances the, the chances are that the recount is going to show that the election results would change. Under the bill, candidates would request recounts only if they lost by one percentage point or less in an election with at least 4,000 votes total. For elections that didn't receive that many votes, the candidate would need to lose by no more than 40 votes as a recall. And the measure would also reimburse the entity that conducts the recount, shorten the deadline to apply. But essentially, the, the, the effect would be just by willing to be just because you're willing to pay for it and use it as an opportunity to pad your mailing lists and to raise money, you can't demand a recount. You have to be within 1%. Now, of course, we all know the results of the recount. Um, Donald Trump actually, the recount ended up showing him getting 193 more votes than the original uh, votes counted. But this would say, really, you have to be within, you have to have a chance a chance of having the recount alter the election before you can demand a recount. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Some of the usual suspects are screaming, oh, there's another Republican effort to stifle democracy. I think this bill makes eminent sense. What this recount did last year, and if you will remember, you had, essentially you had clerks all over the state that had to drop all the things that they were doing, drop their preparations for getting the property tax bills out, recruit people to come in and to start these process and the counts when there was no realistic chance that Jill Stein was ever, ever, ever going to have won Wisconsin. So this new bill would essentially say before you can do this, before you can demand the recount, you have to be within a percentage point. In other words, there has to be a reasonable chance that the recount would change the result of the election. Some people are screaming that this is anti-democracy. I think, candidly, the present system makes absolutely no sense, and this change is the way to go. 414-799-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, should we limit the recounts to people for whom... The recount could actually change the election. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 954. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 
It's 9.57, Jeff Wagner, 6.20, WTMJ. It's been a rough week for the Brewers so far, but they remain in first place by a game and a half. Can they afford not to make bullpen changes moving forward? They may not have a choice. Matt Pauley looks at the roster this evening on Brewers Weekly starting at 8.07. Be sure and tune in for that. Yeah, this is this is... I put this in the category of how quickly we forget. If you will recall, after the November presidential election, when Donald Trump surprised a lot of people by winning Wisconsin, it was a narrow victory over Hillary Clinton. It was actually by less than 1% of the vote. Hillary Clinton did not demand a recount. Hillary Clinton, at least ostensibly, accepted the results. Jill Stein, the Green Party candidate who got around, what, 1% or so of the vote, decided to use the Wisconsin electoral process as a way to raise money and pad her mailing list. So she solicited millions of dollars from people who were shocked that Donald Trump won in order to fund a recount. You will remember clerk's offices across the state had to drop everything that they were doing because there was a very, very narrow window under which the recount, the time limit that the recount had to be done. You had to get the results in in time for, uh, again, the Electoral College. And remember, there's some questions. What happens if they don't get the results certified in time for the Electoral College? Will Wisconsin's votes not count? Remember all the chaos that was caused by this recount, a recount demanded by a candidate who had no chance of, of winning. I mean, just no chance of winning at all. So this bill passed yesterday by the Assembly is something that I support completely. says, look, we're going to eliminate this. We're going to take the Jill Steins of the world out of this particular equation. If you want a recount, you're entitled to one. But the recount, you have to have been close enough in the election that there is a chance that the recount could make a difference. So in other words, under the law, if it is passed by the Senate and signed by the governor, which I think it will be, you have to be within one percentage point. So this allows a recount for legitimate candidates um, who want to make sure that, gee, maybe the wrong person hasn't been elected through a mathematical error or something like that. But for fringe candidates who are trying to manipulate the process, that won't occur. This is a very, very good bill. Coming up in just a couple minutes, President Trump is at a rally in Iowa yesterday, and he floats a very controversial concept regarding immigration. You can't come to this country unless you can support yourself. We'll discuss next. It's 959. It's 909. This is Jeff Wagner. So very glad to have you with us. Yeah, early baseball game. What a great play. Um, had an opportunity to watch the end of the ball game last night. I was at a beer tasting dinner. Had a lot of fun, but came back, got a chance to watch the end of the ball game. Uh, saw Domingo Santana, who I admit I had been critical on for all his strikeouts, you know, hit what turned out to be the game winning home run. And then just a tremendous play by the shortstop, Arcia, to end the game. It was one of those where you see the ball, it's getting hit up the middle. You're going, oh, my gosh, it's going to be a single. It's going to get through. And then the shortstop makes the play, and you're thinking, okay, that that's great. He's at least stopped the runner from scoring from second. He'll have to stop at third. And then he throws the ball to first base. And you're going, oh, my goodness, don't throw it in the dugout. But they threw it. They got the play. Great play. Um, it was the number one highlight on SportsCenter, and it really it was deservedly so. Orlando Garcia, just a tremendous, tremendous play. All right. Um, President Trump right now is emboldened. And you might say, well, why, why is he emboldened? Don't, don't you look at the, he's got a 37% approval rating or whatever. Well, he's emboldened because 
in four special elections to fill congressional seats, congressional vacancies were created by Republican congressmen who took jobs in the Trump administration. In all four of them, Democrats poured in tons of money. Now, these were Republican-leaning districts, but they poured in tons of money. And in general, they made Donald Trump the issue. And in all four cases, the Democrats lost. And uh, the most notable example was Tuesday. You know, we've talked about this before. You had, it was Newt Gingrich's old congressional seat. It is a Republican-leaning seat. But you had a situation where you had this 30-year-old Democrat who had more money than God. They put in, uh, this was a national effort, kind of like the recall effort against Scott Walker was. You had over $23 million spent to support the Democratic candidate. And I think, you know, probably an equal amount, you know, spent to report the, the Republican candidate. But enormous amount of spending. The polls all showed that the Democrat was leading, and at the end of the day, it was a comfortable margin. The Republican won by about four points. Now, that's that's not what the incumbent congressman won by, but Donald Trump was one of the issues here. And the idea was, we're going to spend 20-some million dollars, we're going to use this as a referendum against Donald Trump. And the reality was, as it turns out, uh, Nancy Pelosi was more unpopular, and the Democrats' agenda was more unpopular than Donald Trump was. Um, And it is kind of interesting to watch these stories. Now, in the immediate aftermath of that election, there was one talking head after another who was on the MSNBCs of the world and and just, like, spinning like my fidget spinner here. The idea they were trying to say, well, this isn't really that bad. And, you know, we the, the margin of victory wasn't that great, and it, this shows that there's a change and things like that. Well, the, the truth is you couldn't win. And, you know, politics are all about you know, 50% plus one vote. And this is four elections in a row where you've poured tons of money in and you can't win. And the headline in the New York Times today, after Georgia election, Democrats are demoralized uh, again. Um, Fox News, message from Georgia, hating Trump is not a platform. Yeah, that's see, that's where I, I think the left has gone wrong in Wisconsin over the years. There are a certain percentage of people who just hate Scott Walker. They, they, they do. But that in and of itself isn't enough. That's the 43% solution. You know, how do you get that other 7% plus one vote to win? You can't beat somebody with, with nobody. Another New York Times story. Democrats seethe after Georgia loss. Our brand is worse than Trump. Yeah. Yeah, it is. So President Trump feels emboldened. So he's out at I he's out in Iowa and he's having a rally. And he this hasn't gotten a lot of attention, but it's something that again, it goes back to his campaign roots, but is destined to be extremely controversial. All right, yesterday the president called for barring immigrants from welfare for five years. He announced he's going to ask Congress to pass legislation which would ban immigrants from accessing public assistance within five years of entering the U.S. Here's what he says. The time has come for new immigration rules that say those seeking immigration into our country must be able to support themselves financially and should not use welfare for a period of at least five years. Trump's proposal would build on the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act of 1996, try saying that fast three times, which allows federal authorities 
to deport immigrants and who become public dependents within five years of their arrival. Many of the law's provisions were rolled back during the Bush and Obama administration, but Trump's proposal would make more categories of federal benefits off limits to immigrants. Um, Trump's proposal would also prevent the admission of people who are likely to become so-called public charges within five years of their arrival. The concept of public charge has been part of U.S. immigration law for over a century, but it is not actively enforced. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. It used to be, if you look at, at immigration, I think, historically, the idea was a lot of people coming into this country, there, there had to be some idea of how they would support themselves. Are there family? Are there friends? You know, who's going to take care of people? This proposal would say, if you come into this country, you are not going to be able to access public benefits for a five-year period. There's a report that's out there that says that 51% of households headed by immigrants are using some form of public assistance compared to 30% of non-immigrant families. Now, you know, that that doesn't like really break down the five-year thing. But what do you think about the concept? If you're going to come into this country legally, should you be able to support yourself? Should you have some support mechanism, whether it's family or friends or somebody who's going to take care of you? And should you be banned from public assistance, public benefits, for a period of five years? 414-799-1620. That's the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And how would this work in reality? Which is always the question. I'll tell you where I come down on this, but I'm curious as to what you think as well. Is this a good idea? And is it a practical idea? We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 1016. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 1019. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Now that the verdict has been reached in the Dominique Hagan Brown trial, the community continues to react. John McCure will have continuing coverage following Brewers baseball today on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Yeah, there's a little bit of confusion about this, but there's a law that goes back to, to, to 1996. And that allows federal authorities to deport immigrants who become public dependents within five years. Okay, so you have the right to deport people. Trump announces yesterday he actually wants to go a step farther and he wants to deny somebody who comes into this country legally, deny them access to most forms of public benefits um, during that first five year period. Right now, here's the practical question. You know, let's. Let us assume, for the sake of argument, that you have a, a family that legally uh, comes into this country, husband, wife, ma- uh, and, and two kids, and they've got a job. And then a year and a half into the job, company that they're working for closes down. They can't get, you know, they, they, they lose the job. They lose their income. They're here legally, um, you know, on a green card or whatever. Do you not give them food stamps? I mean, how practical is this? Is this something that sounds better on paper than it works out in real life? Shernaz in Brookfield, you're on 620 BTMJ. Good morning. Good morning, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. I 
think uh, it is totally i'm i totally agree with uh, donald trump regarding that because we have a community uh, people they came all the way from the country and their son had some kind of stuff in the hole like a hole in the heart or something right. they had a surgery in the children's hospital within two weeks period of time they came in and everything was free right. and also the people who come in the country with the pregnant woman with the with the visit visa and they had their baby done for free and they get the passport and everything and go back to the country i think it is totally unfair why should we pay for them right and so the idea being that if if you're going to come into this country, you should be able to pay your own way for at least five years. Be- right. Okay, thanks for your perspective. I appreciate it. 414-799-1620. That's the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I I agree with this in theory. I mean, it, it does make sense to me that you don't you, you you don't want people and again we're talking about we're talking about people who legally immigrate because you know under the law if you're here illegally technically you're not supposed to have access to you know public assistance anyways so i mean i understand in theory and i understand exactly what she is talking about in those type of examples the flip side is how do you deal with the situation that i'm rolling out you have people who've come here legally um let's say and, and they're not just here they haven't come into exploit U.S. benefits. They've come here because they've got a job. They've got a brother who's got the job for them. You know, they want to be part of the American dream. They've done everything right. But two and a half years in, the bottom kind of falls out and they need assistance. Do you say no to food stamps? Do you say no to these type of things um, and say, you know, go back to the country you came from? That's the practical problem with this. Barb, let's see, Barb in Whitewater. Barb, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning to you. Um, first of all, I want to tell you I'm so glad to be back in Wisconsin. <laughs> From where? <laughs> uh, we spent two and a half years in Colorado. Okay. And we're back. Welcome no back. More, no more. Anyway, I missed you. Oh. Because I couldn't get you out there. Well, welcome back, Barb. That's so sweet of you to say. You just made my morning. <laughs> well, good. I hope this will also help. Um, my grandparents came over from Europe, Poland specifically, and when they came, now, we're talking a long time ago, because I'm well over... Mm-hmm. We don't, yeah, we don't need to go into it. I get it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So my grandparents came over from Poland, and they had a sponsor. Right. And the sponsor was responsible for them. Right. And I think that's, you know, five years out, you shouldn't come in and get all these, you know, even mm-hmm. just one year. Five years. To establish yourself. Be with somebody who can help you. Otherwise, don't come. Right. And if if what about the, what about the situation I, I just laid out though? Um, somebody who somebody who comes in in good faith, not somebody who's coming in to scam the system, but somebody who comes in in good faith. You've got the job. You've got the sponsor. You've got all this lined up, and then everything goes to you know where in a handbasket after yeah, two and a I half years. That. But you have a sponsor, and they have to be responsible for you Mm -hmm. for five years. Right. And And that means if you run into trouble, they help you out. If they run into trouble, maybe they get food stamps. But you're not entitled. And furthermore, if you're going to come in and spend five years here, you should be studying to become a citizen. Right. And learning the language. Learning (laughs) the language. My grandparents spoke Polish, but my mother learned English right away, and she did not have a further education because her father said women didn't need it. 
So she made sure that all of her daughters, all four of us, went to college if we wanted to. So, yes, you can do it, and I think you can do it properly. Thanks for the call, Barb, and welcome back. Glad to have you. That's so sweet. She said she missed me. 414-799-1620. Here's the thing. I agree with the president in theory. I, I, I do. I agree with the president in theory. To me, my only hesitation on this is, is, again, the devil is in the details. And for people who are coming into this country clearly with the idea of coming in, the idea of exploiting our public assistance types of programs, I mean, it's obvious. Yes, you, you shouldn't be able to do that. The detail, though, that, again, I wrestle with is the scenario that I put out. What do you do with the people that are here legally and all of a sudden, after two or three years, something bad and unexpected happens do you simply say okay we're going to give you no public assistance at all now the law allows those people to be deported but if you've got somebody who's productive but just fallen on hard times how do you handle it that's the category that i am worried about with this particular law but i certainly agree with it in in principle uh jane in oak creek jane good morning you're on 620 wtmj good morning jeff i have to ask you a question what about the people that have been here all their life that have fallen on hard times? Mm-hmm. I can speak for myself. My husband and I, we got married. He was in college. I was going to college. We had a baby. We had a quit. She had thousands and thousands of dollars of medical bills. Mm-hmm. What did we do? We each got two jobs, continued going to school, got a small amount of help from my parents, but we could not get aid because we were maybe $5 over the amount where you're eligible, <laughs> right, eligible for that. Aid. Yep. So we just plowed through. And at one time I said to my husband, come on, we are so deep in debt. They're medical bills. File bankruptcy. My husband said, absolutely not. Right. You're just going to tough it out. them right. off. Right. So that's kind of your attitude that that people, you know, if you're going to come into this country, you should be able to support yourself at least for the first several years before you start going on the dole. Yes. And it can be done. Maybe it's not your ideal job. Our jobs weren't ideal either. My husband and I were cleaning banks for Mm -hmm. a living. (laughs) Wow. Well, understood. Thanks for the call. I appreciate it. Um, We're going to continue this conversation. Got a lot of interest because this. I understand where Trump is coming from. Again, I, I've expressed what my hesitation is to this as to is this practical in the real world? Like I say, the law right now says if somebody becomes and the term in the law is public charge within five years of coming into this country, they can be deported. We typically don't do that nowadays, but we, we could do it. But Trump wants to take it a step farther. If you're on the line, hold on. We continue the conversation. It's 1028. It's 1035, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, John in Greendale. John, thanks for waiting. Good morning. Hi, uh, Jeff. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Sure. First-time caller. It's uh, Greendale. Uh, right. Uh, I do agree with uh, Trump. Um, all I can do is relate that to uh, my experience. Uh, we left uh, Slovenia in uh, 46 after the communists uh, took over became part of the immigration system, did have to have a sponsor before uh, we got into it. It took us uh, 
oh, four years to get into uh, America, right. uh, going from BP camps to BP camps. Came here to uh, Wisconsin because our sponsor was here. Uh, and there lies in a, a little bit of a problem in that our sponsor demanded uh, my dad, uh, my mother, brother, and I to change religion. Wow. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, and uh, he kind of refused. Um, uh, and then went to uh, the big city, which was Milwaukee, to get a job. And uh, through it all, he had two, three jobs. My mom had a job. Uh, we became part of a church. The church uh, kind of helped, but mm-hmm. we were all self-sufficient. And the government kind of um, was out of it after uh, um, so giving us transport to get here. So having having lived through this yourself, you would support what, what the president is talking about, saying, hey, if you come to the United States, you should be prepared either through yourself or through a sponsor or somehow to support yourself for at least five years without expecting government assistance. Uh, I kind of, I agree with that, but I also know that America has compassion, and yep. in those cases uh, that kind of fall through the cracks, um, uh, yes, um, uh, they'll help out. Uh, but you got to uh, understand that coming to this uh, great country uh, is um, uh, is a great privilege. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got to uh, spend time. Uh, learning the language and uh, getting yourself involved. Uh, otherwise, you should have stayed where you were. Did, I'm just curious, John, did you speak any English when you came to the country, came to none, America? None at all. That's a good question, because um, as soon as we got here, my dad and mom said um, uh, English will be uh, the only language um, spoken in the house. Spoken huh? In the house, and they were fluent in four or five languages, but not English. Huh. So my uh, uh, day was uh, when I would come home, I would um, <laughs> get out the Dick uh, and Jane books uh, <laughs> and go over it with them. And little by little, we taught them um, um, English, and they kind of assimilated themselves into huh. like uh, everybody else has. When did you become uh, a citizen? I assume time. I assume you're a citizen now. Oh yeah. When did you uh, become a citizen? Life. When did you become a citizen? Uh, when my uh, parents got uh, their citizenship, um, they had uh, they spent five years uh, of studying, and at that time, um, they passed the test, and uh, uh, we were nationalized, uh, my brother and I. Interesting. John, thanks for the call, and thanks for the perspective. You know, I, I know I'm, I'm, I'm distracting myself here, but I... Um, when I when I used to work in the U.S. Attorney's Office, it was in an old federal building, and they, they used to have the, these naturalization ceremonies. You know, once they, they do them a few times a year. I, I don't know if it's once a month, but what would happen is all all the people who were becoming citizens would, would come down, and you were, you're formally sworn in, and they do the ceremony in one of the courtrooms. And, and I used to occasionally go down and watch it it was the coolest thing it, it, because you you got to see you know folks who had done it the right way folks who had come into this country legally and had worked so very very hard to get their citizenship and you, you just you saw you saw what it meant to them and and i admit that whenever we're talking about issues presented by you know illegal immigration i admit i always flash back to those naturalization you know pr- processes and and i just i look i remember just looking at the faces of people and how proud they were that they're going to be american citizens and how hard they worked and and i do 
admit that that kind of informs again my my take on this because you have you have so many people that work so hard and do so much to come into this country and it's so important to them and I, I always wonder if we just kind of turn our back and just say well okay what difference does it make you know whether you're doing it the right way or the wrong way you know do we really do a service to all those people who've done it the right way Mary in Port Washington hi Mary you're on six twenty WTMJ good morning. Good morning. Thank you for call, taking my call. Yes, I agree 100% with uh, what everybody else is saying, that they need to have a period of self-support, either from the church that's sponsoring you, the organization that's sponsoring you. And I don't know how long it takes to get your citizenship, but I would almost extend that until they get their citizenship, that they are not mm. entitled to welfare. Uh, I don't know how long, if it's a, an extended period of time, five years might be a good time right. limit, but they should be working at least for their citizenship. Right. Well, again, they, they, I, I see, I, I, I agree. I agree with the president in, in theory. And I guess I'm just, I'm trying, I'm trying to imagine, you know, what, what does happen to the situation where you have, you, you have the family that's come in and they're, they're really making the good faith effort. And they end up falling through the cracks. But I will tell you this. I, I do think as a general policy, this is a decent rule. And it, it really is just expanding on the existing law. And, again, we're, we're talking about – we're not talking about people who are in this country illegally because, by and large, for most of the public assistance programs, they're not eligible for that um, – those now. But we are talking about the people that are in legally. But I don't think it is an unreasonable position to take to say, hey, you know, if you're – you know, if you're going to come into this this country, well, you you know, you should be able to support yourself and not expect that you're going to be able to come in and automatically take advantage of the the, the services that we as the taxpayers uh, fund. Don in Watertown. Don, you're on six twenty three TMJ. Good morning. Well, good morning. What do you think? I I'm a little disappointed that it's only a five year period. I'd like to see it be a lot longer than that. Okay. And uh, you refer to the, these these laws are on the books, and they just haven't been enforced. Well, right. That's exactly why Donald Trump got elected. Yep. American people are sick and tired of them picking and choosing winners yeah. and losers, and what laws they will enforce, and which ones they won't. Right. Well, just, I mean, just just to be clear, thanks for the call. I mean, just to be clear, the the, the nineteen ninety six law says the. Okay, I mean, I, I want to be exact here. The 1996 law allows federal authorities to deport immigrants who become public dependents within five years of their arrival. So if, if somebody goes on public assistance, um, you could deport them. Um, this would expand that to say, okay, instead of deporting people, we could just simply deny them the public assistance in the first place. So it, it's really... It's a variation, an addition, and an option under the existing law. But, it, I mean, I think then you could argue, okay, if somebody goes on public assistance, you just send them back to where they, they came from, or is it better to say you have to have an alternative? Uh, the devil is in the details, and you, you know that if this gets serious consideration, there's going to be a lot of people just screaming using the example that I, I, I gave. You know, what do you do about that? they got six kids, and they've lost their job, and all of a sudden, are you going to say the kids starve? I mean, th- those are some of the practical realities with this. But, you know, in theory, I, I think it is very reasonable to say if you're going to come to this country, you should have a- at least 
a plan and some reasonable basis to believe that you're going to be able to support yourself and your dependents um, or, or there's going to be somebody that's going to assist you in supporting yourself and your dependents. It's 1044. This is Jeff Wagner. Some are claiming that when President Trump blocks followers on Twitter, it violates their First Amendment rights. Steve and Eric take a closer look in the Scafidi and Billstead Show podcast on the WTMJ mobile app. The state's number one car guy, Jim Griffin, talks candidly with John Mercure. So, Jim, you've become Wisconsin's number one Ford, Chrysler, Jeep, Dodge, Ram dealer. Wow, those are proud titles. That means something. I think more than meaning something, it says something. What do you mean, Jim? Well, people aren't going to shop Griffin Hub, Chevy, or Ford because we're number one, but the fact that we're number one says something. I think you're right about that. What does it say? It says Wisconsin trusts us for rock-bottom prices, a fair deal, great service. It says more people in Wisconsin choose Griffin than any other dealer. And that's saying a lot. Hey, they're smart Wisconsin people. They didn't fall off the turnip truck. They shop. They know quality. They appreciate value. And Griffin is the brand that they can turn to for both. We're proud to be number one, but we're even more proud to be the dealership good enough to earn Wisconsin's trust. Now that is well said, Mr. Griffin. Well said. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. I'm very, so very glad to have you with us. It's a huge night in the NBA as teams are drafting their future. What direction will the Bucks and new general manager John Horst go with their picks? Greg Matzik gets the inside scoop from Bucks analysts, coaches, and more. That's on Bucks Draft Central. It all starts tonight at 6.07. Be sure to tune in for that. All right. Um, President Trump in an effort to try to save money, has proposed dramatically reducing the number of Amtrak trains. Um, Amtrak has significant operating ex- losses. Um, let's see, I'm looking 2015, which is the last year I have them, um, $306 million in operating losses. Now, highways don't pay for themselves either, but you know Amtrak... Amtrak loses money. Um, What Trump is suggesting is that essentially Amtrak concentrate on being a commuter train and that you look particularly in in the Northeast. You know, people use Amtrak a lot to commute between uh, Boston and New York or between New York and Washington, things like that. It's it's very these routes are very, very heavily traveled in the dense, you know, corridors in, in the Northeast. Um, in Wisconsin, you know, you've got the, the, the Amtrak train, the Hiawatha, that runs back and forth from Chicago. And it, I mean, depending on the time of day you're looking at, I guess perhaps, perhaps what day it is, it, it's, it is extremely u- well used. I mean, I'm, I will tell you, when I used to have to go to Chicago a lot to do oral arguments at the uh, court of, Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, I, I would routinely be on the train. To, to this day, if you're going to downtown Chicago, I think that you know the train is the way to go. I mean, you don't have to fool around with expensive parking. You know, Chicago is a good cab city if you need to get around. The train station is right downtown. And you know, typically, if I'm going to go down to Chicago, unless unless there's some reason I need a car to take me out to the suburbs or something, I mean, I'm, I'm going to take the train. So I love it, and a lot of people do it. Other routes um, are are less traveled 
but they're also more expensive. You know, for example, you have um, in, in Wisconsin, you've got the Empire Builder. The Hiawatha is the train that goes back and forth between Chicago and Milwaukee. And then you've got the, the Empire Builder, and the Empire Builder is the, the route. It's Chicago to Seattle, um, but, it, but it goes through Wisconsin. Um, a lot of people use it um, if you want to go from Chicago to Minneapolis and you don't want to fly, you don't want to drive, that, that's, you, you would take the, the Empire Builder. Um, it stops in various locations. And there's a story in the Journal Sentinel today about how you know the Empire Builder passes through Toma twice a day, once in each direction. And it's a way that um, for people who... For example, if you want to go from Chicago to, to Toma, if you want to visit families, you know the, the train is the way to go. Well, what President Trump is proposing is cutting $2.4 billion from the federal transportation budget. That would be 13% less than last year's funding, and it would essentially eliminate federal funding for Amtrak's national network of, of trains. So, again, the long-distance trains would essentially disappear unless they're able to figure out a way to fund themselves and it's probably not going to happen as you might expect there's a lot of people that are are screaming because they they say okay we rely on rail transportation or we like rail transportation you know we love being able to take three days and and go to the west coast and see all the different sites as you go for example from chicago to seattle and the argument is it would just be a travesty to eliminate this Trump says, hey, I need to save money. 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. All right. President Trump wants to eliminate lots of long-distance train service in favor of concentrating on the commuter trains and the ways to get people, again, in the heavily populated areas. Do we still need a national passenger rail system, and should the federal government underwrite it? We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. I'll tell you where I come down on this as well. It's 1052. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. And my guess is we have a lot of train enthusiasts who are listening, and a lot of other people are saying, it would never occur to me to ride the train from Chicago to Seattle, and if I do, I should have to pay for the cost of it. The taxpayer shouldn't subsidize. Where do you come down? We discuss next. 1052, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 1055, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. You know, I've been thinking a lot about this since the the whole concept was floated uh, about substantial cutbacks and eliminating long-distance passenger rail system. And, And the argument being, well, it doesn't pay for itself and so the taxpayers shouldn't underwrite it. And I, I appreciate that, but I have to tell you, I, I do think there is a role for long-distance train travel in, in this country. And and I guess I, I look at it and I say, okay, well, should the taxpayers be supporting this form of travel? And I understand why people would say, no, it should pay its own way. But, but here's the reality. Taxpayers, even people who don't fly on airlines, you know, support the air industry. Now, you support the air industry directly when you pay the taxes, when you buy the tickets. But, you know, the, the government provides lots of support to different airlines in order to and, and to the aviation industry in general and to building the airports and things like that. It, it's not – 
the, the taxpayers help underwrite air travel. And we don't argue that, well, okay, we don't need air travel, so you know we, we don't have government assistance. Uh, the taxpayers do, I mean, public roadways, we support them, you know, again, through registration taxes we pay, but other money a- as well. So, you know, the government does underwrite the roadways. Now, I think it is more than fair to look at some of the routes, for example, the long-distance routes that Amtrak runs, and to say... How many people? How many people are riding the Empire Builder? Just for the sake of, of argument, I mean, how many people are using this? How much money are we losing? You know, for this particular trips, and if we are losing money at all, just for the sake of argument, how much money are we losing? And is this is this a failing route? Do we need to discontinue it? Just like, for example, in Milwaukee, the, the bus company, the transit company, you look at routes all the time. Who's riding the routes? How many buses do we need? Is this a route that's succeeding or failing? And you do adjust. You say, okay, well, we're, we're going to discontinue this route. I think it is perfectly fair and legitimate to start analyzing these long-distance train routes and to say, all right, what are the train routes that people are riding on? And what are the train routes that people aren't riding on? I'll give you another example, post offices. We have a ton of post offices all over. And whenever there's an effort to try to close an underperforming and underutilized post office, you have, you've got the local congressman or the mayor screaming, oh, this is terrible. Somebody's going to have to walk an extra four blocks to the post office. So, you know, we end up subsidizing. In this case, you have to force the, the post office that's failing to, to stay open. Well, I, I, that doesn't make any sense to me either. I think what you have to do is look at, on an individual basis, whether it's post offices or bus routes or plane routes or long-distance train travel, I think you have to look at it and say, what are the routes that people are riding and what are the people routes that people aren't riding? Um, and, and then make your decision to simply take an ax to all long-distance train travel in this country, though, I I think would be a mistake. Now, I understand that to the extent Amtrak makes money, a lot of the money it makes is, again, for this northeast corridor that I was talking about, where people are are used to rail transportation and there's a proximity to cities. But um, the idea that we want to do away with all long-distance train travel, I think that's overbroad. If the president was saying, hey, we're going to critically analyze train routes and, you know, maybe maybe we can get rid of 50 percent of them because they don't have the ridership to justify it. I'm all in favor of that. Getting rid of all long distance train routes. um, I think I think that might be too much. It's 1108. This is Jeff Wagner. Colleen, stick around for a second. How old are your kids? They are 10 and 7. Okay, 10 and 7. Mm -hmm. All right. Do you know, I'm just, this might be an unfair question, but at night, like let's say after 11 o'clock at night, do you know where your 10-year-old is? Yes, I do. You're you're confident that you know where your 10-year-old is? Yep, absolutely. Now let me ask you to look into your crystal ball for a minute. And I understand we can't predict the future with certainty, but when your 10-year-old is 13, do you feel relatively confident that you're going to know in the middle of the night where your 13-year-old child is going to be? I certainly hope so. Right. I mean, you're you're going to be making every effort and and if 
Oh yes, yeah, curfew, anything like all, that. Yeah. All those types of things. So you're you are relatively kind, con- and and I, I ask this because, I mean, it's really not a softball question because I, I think most people, most responsible parents would say, well, of course, a thirteen-year-old, I'm going to know where that thirteen-year-old is. Mm-hmm. I, right. I think so. You try, you try your best. Okay. All right. Good enough. Thank you. I just I wanted that, that background to lead into this story. Mount Pleasant, Racine County. Get this. Mount Pleasant police say they have arrested a driver who led officers on two chases in Racine County last night. Okay, the first what happened at the beginning, the first pursuit began about 1130 last night in Mount Pleasant when the officers saw a vehicle driving with no headlights. And they decided to try they tried to pull the car over because it's driving without headlights at 11.30 at night. As is typical nowadays, the car, instead of stopping, took off. There a chase ensued. The chase led officers into Racine, where the car, without headlights, ran through stop signs and traffic signals. After about two miles, the police decided this chase was so out of control and the driver was so erratic and so dangerous that, that they, they discontinued the chase. They said, okay, we're, you know, th- this is, you know, it, it's endangering our lives, it's endangering other people's lives. So they let this car that's no headlights, speeding, running through stop signs, running through red lights, they let it go. All right. The same vehicle is then spotted about 3 a.m. this morning. So the first chase starts at 11.30 at night last night. Now it's 3 a.m. Um, they see the same car again, 3 a.m., and the officers again pursue it. Same crap happens. The car takes off, stop signs, traffic signals to the point that the officers decide they're going to they're breaking off the chase. Okay, it's too dangerous to continue chasing. All right. Well, here's here's the story. During the pursuit. And I don't know if it was the first one or the second one. I'm assuming the second one, but not positive. During the pursuit, officers are able to get vehicle registration information. And it ties the car into a Sturdivant address. So what they do is they go to the Sturdivant address and they kind of set up a, a perimeter to see what happens. And after a while, the car pulls in. So this is the car that's led them on the two chases, one at 11.30, one at 3 a.m. Okay, here's the dazzling detail of this story. The driver was 13 years old. The driver was 13 years old. Now, I understand school is not in session, so it's it's not a school night. But still, you've got a 13-year-old. And last time I checked, the legal limit to drive was 16. So you've got a 13-year-old who's out, and I don't know that I even just use the description joyride, but out, okay, with a car, 1130 at night, headlights off, leading the cops on a chase. That's at that point in time. Out again at 3 in the morning, another chase, and the, rec- the driving is so reckless that the cops don't even pursue. They have to let the car go. It's a 13-year-old. Now, obviously... Obviously, this 13-year-old needs to be held accountable. But there's a larger issue to me. Now, I understand that parents, 
sometimes we ask rhetorically, you know, where are, are the parents and how do you hold them accountable? And I, I understand that there are situations where, all right, you know, parents can't know what their kids are doing all the time. But you've got a 13-year-old who's out presumably most of the night driving around in a car without lights on, leading high-speed chases. And, and I don't know that the kid was driving from 1130 to 3. We know he was driving at 1130, led the cops on a chase. We know he was back out again at 3 in the morning at the age of 13, leading the cops on another chase. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. To me... This is – the, the kid deserves to have the book thrown at him, right? A kid deserves charged in juvenile court and to be held accountable. But I think this is one of those cases where it is fair to say, what do you know what is going on with the parents? And doesn't there need to be some accountability on the parent part of the parents as well, that you're in a situation where you don't know what the kid is doing – or if, you know, you, even if there's supposed to be some sort of accountability, there's nobody checking up on the kid, the kid has access to the vehicle, the kid is inclined to do it. I mean, is it fair to try to hold the parents responsible for this as well? Or do you, we simply say, well, the kid is 13, mom and dad couldn't be expected to do anything? 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk, that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, sometimes I think it is unfair when we say, where are the parents? In a case like this, yeah, where are the parents? It's the middle of the night. The kid, 13 years old, is driving a car, endangering himself, more importantly, endangering all the rest of us. You bet I think the parents deserve to be held accountable. Let's start with Clint in Bayview. Clint, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Morning, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. Uh, I agree. You know, I don't have kids, so I find it hard to judge the parenting of uh, other people, but I, it's Enough is enough. Uh, where are the parents? Where is the tough love? Why was this kid pulling into the driveway going back into the house? I didn't steal cars when I was 13, but it was made very clear to me by my parents that had I done something like that, uh, it would be better in my right. best interest to spend the night in jail. Because right. especially my mother, there were, there would have been no no good reason for me to be at home. So where are the parents? Showing right. the kids the tough love, you need to spend the night in jail to think about what you did. Well, yeah, as a matter of fact, I'd, I'd say you spend more than the night in jail. Now, the story, the way Fox 6 is reporting it, is that the 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 13-year-old had taken the vehicle from his father's girlfriend without permission. Well, okay, so that's the... Okay, that, that's, that's the good news. The girlfriend didn't give him permission to go at some, some point in time. Apparently, the, these chases, the kid was driving more than 80 miles an hour, you know, during, like, some of the, the chases. So, I mean, they say he took it from his dad's girlfriend without permission. But I guess, you know, again, I understand that parents, you can't watch somebody all the time. But it is, un, is it unreasonable to say, all right, I... Parents, what didn't we have? Don't we have these curfews? Remember when I was growing up, you had the curfews. There's an eleven o'clock curfew. Parents, do you know where your children are? Do you know that it's three o'clock in the morning and they're driving around at a high rate of speed in your car or in your girlfriend's car? Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I don't think it's unreasonable in cases like this to say, "Hey, th- this is clearly negligence." What is going on in the home? And the kid deserves to be held accountable. Don't get me wrong. Throw the book at, at the kid. But how can you how can you seriously not know that your kid has 
taken your car, in this case, taken your girlfriend's car, and he's driving around... He's driving around Racine County at a high rate of speed, leading cops on various chases for the better part of out several hours. Seth in Green Bay. Seth, you're on 620 WTMJ. Seth. Yes. Hi, Seth. Good morning. Morning. Uh, you know, it's just appalling. I, obviously, to have a 13-year-old out joyriding is one thing, but I agree. I think more of the trouble here is with the parents. How, how can this happened you know, twice, <laughs> let alone in one night. Um, obviously, a 13-year-old needs to be held accountable, but I think more accountable, the parents, the guardians. It's, it's, it's so sad to see that this could even reach the sort of level. Yeah, apparently, um, thanks, right, yeah, it is. And I, Okay, and I, I, there's a little more details. Apparently, um, what happened is after the first pursuit, the officers were able to get the vehicle registration information that came back to this house in Sturdivant. They went to the house, but nobody answered, and the vehicle wasn't there. So the 13-year-old is apparently on, on his own, no sort of supervision at all, driving around in this car. Now, I presume from that detail that the kid probably was driving around from the time of the first chase at 1130 till 3 o'clock in the morning. Nope, nobody home. I mean, I... I wouldn't leave my dog. I wouldn't leave my dog Sasha home alone all night, you know. And and, and she's she's not going to take my car keys and go drive. I don't think and go driving around, you know, at high rates of speed. I mean, really, you're just going to leave this 13 year old unsupervised, especially a kid who's inclined to take automobiles. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Rose in Menominee Falls. Rose you're on six twenty WTMJ. Good morning. Hi. Hi, Rose. I- just want to say, I mean, were the parents, if they were home sleeping, how can they help? Well, I don't think they were. I don't think they were home. Officers well, responded to home, the home, but no one answered, and the vehicle was not there. Well, if somebody's knocking at my door or my doorbell in the middle of the night, I wouldn't hear them anyways. I would still be sleeping. The problem is, I mean, if they were home, they shouldn't be held accountable because they were sleeping, and you can't constantly keep an eye on kids. You can't lock them in the bedroom. You can't lock your keys up all the time. But if they weren't home, they shouldn't have had left the 13-year home alone. Then they're responsible. Okay. Well, I guess I'm not. I mean, th- that's that's an interesting. Dis- I mean, thanks. It's an interesting distinction, and I understand. You know, right? Because I understand you. You can't watch kids all the time, but but I gotta believe. And and again, maybe this is easy for me to say that I because I don't have children, but I've gotta believe that most people would have an idea, even if they're, and I, again, I, I from the story, I take the fact that they're probably not home. Officers responded to the home. No one answered. The vehicle was not there. So I'm assuming that nobody was, was there. And this is, I don't know if it's the dad's house or the, it, this, this might be the girlfriend's house because it was her car. So, I mean, I, I don't know those circumstances. But officers responded to the home. No one answered. So I assume nobody, nobody's there. But, um, okay, if cops are banging on your door in the middle of the night and you're sleeping through that and you're not – no, I'm sorry. I just I just don't buy that. I, I understand kids sneak out, 
But this was for hours and hours and hours. And I guess I find it difficult to believe that you wouldn't know that your 13-year-old kid has snuck out, stolen your car or your girlfriend's car, and been gone for hours and hours. No, I, I and I think that says something not only about the kid, but I do think it says something about again, the supervision. The kid is 13. This isn't even like a 16 or a 17-year-old. This kid is 13. What 13-year-old kid decides, I'm going to sneak out, I'm going to steal this car, and then I'm going to drive around at 80 miles an hour running from the cops. It's 11:23. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Our text line exploded with this. Um, I disagree, Jeff. We had the same case. My stepdaughter took our car at one o'clock in the morning when I was gone, and her father was home sleeping, and went for a joyride to Walmart, where Walmart, where her father works. And we called the police, and they did nothing. Okay, I, I, but but here's where this is different. This is a kid. This this wasn't okay. Mom and dad are sleeping. You take the car keys, you, you drive off, and you're gone for a little bit of time. The, the first chase was 11.30 at night. The next chase was 3 o'clock in the morning. So this isn't just they're gone for a few minutes. This is they're gone all all night. And I, I do, I mean, if you've got a kid that is inclined to do that, I, I do think you have some responsibilities. Uh, let's see. Lori in Milwaukee writes, holy cow, I'd never be able to even get out without my parents' hearing me and again i i wonder my first question is was anybody home you know were were in this case were dad and and girlfriend it was girlfriend's car you know were they were they out were they there you know what exactly was going on but how can how can the child be unsupervised for this length of time just asking all right uh, one of the jurors in the bill cosby case is talking and the, the the judge the judge had directed the jurors not to talk I, I, I'm not sure legally you can do that. Um, candidly, I, I just I know sometimes judges will say that and they'll kind of give it the, um, the they'll, they'll try to put the weight of the law behind it. I, I'm not sure you can actually tell jurors that they can't discuss the deliberations. I mean, you can you can ask them not to do it, but I don't know that you know you can hold them in contempt of court. You know, once court is out of session, I mean, I I'm just not sure that you can do that. But regardless, um, one of the jurors. In the Bill Cosby case, talk. Now, everybody remembers the Bill Cosby case. He was account charged of uh, three counts of sexual assault. The assault allegedly happened back in 2004. After several days of deliberations, the jury was unable to reach a verdict. And what sometimes people lose track of is in criminal cases, it's the states that the, the jury has to agree unanimously. They have to either unanimously agree that the prosecution has proved its case beyond a reasonable doubt or they have to unanimously agree that they didn't. So to get a verdict, yesterday you had a not guilty verdict. That meant all the jurors unanimously agreed that the state hadn't met its burden of proof in the prosecution of the police officer. Um, The Bill Cosby case, the, the jury hung. They were unable to reach a verdict, and one of the jurors was talking about it. He said, initially, when they began, this is kind of interesting to me, when they began their deliberations, they, they, they took an informal poll, which is typically, I mean, I've never been on a jury, but it makes sense to me. You, you go into the jury room and you say, okay, before we start actually deliberating, let's just see where people stand on this. And according to the juror, on the, um, the initial kind of non-binding poll, all, all the jurors, all 12, voted the comedian not guilty on all three counts. So the initial decision was, no, he's not guilty. 
Then they started talking about it. And apparently, as they discussed it, 10 out of the 12 changed their minds and decided they thought he was guilty on two of the three counts. The third count of sexual assault, I I think almost nobody thought he was. But at least as to two of the three counts, after talking about this, they came around and and 10 out of the 12 thought he was, in fact, guilty. Um, That's not enough. I mean, it it needs to be unanimous. So they ended up not being able to reach a verdict. The prosecutor says he's going to retry him. And I don't know candidly whether, you know, there's anything they're going to be able to present at the new trial that's going to be different. But uh, at least on two of the three counts, 10 of the 12 jurors was ready to send America's dad, Bill Cosby, um, at the age of 79, if not to prison, at least to convict him of a felony. It's 1027. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 10. It's 1127. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Uh, Let's see. I'm not going to read your name. My 11-year-old daughter has come across a boy the same age, 11 years old. My 11-year-old daughter has come across a boy the same age whose parents are not around. Grandma takes care of him, but not very well. The child bullies random kids on social media, shows up at public locations like the YMCA and the Ice Arena, and causes trouble often. He's out at all hours of the day and night. He was recently held for the cops to deal with, and they cannot find an adult to respond for him. Without any able adult, he will most likely continue on the negative path he seems to already pursue. I think this is more common now, and it's not easy for authorities to address. Yeah, and now it seems like, okay, 13 years old, and, and it's, it's not just like it's a joyride. It's, all right, 13 years old, you're driving at a high rate of speed, you decide to flee, boom. It's 1136, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. We, we started off the program talking about, in my opinion, how out of control the Milwaukee County District Attorney's Office, and the District Attorney in particular, was in the decision to charge the, this case, uh, the prosecution of Dominic Hagen, Hagen Brown. Um, we discussed that at the start of the show. I, I, I received an email from, and I'm not going to, I'm, I, this is not an anonymous email. I know who this is. Um, it is somebody, he, she, extremely well-known in the Wisconsin law enforcement community, but he, she, asking me not to use their name for reasons that I, I think are going to be apparent. But let me let me read you a por- portion of this email. And again, this is this is not an anonymous source this is someone who, again, very would be very well known in the Wisconsin law enforcement community. I was greatly disappointed when John Chisholm charged Officer Hagen Brown. It was clear from a prosecution viewpoint that this was not a provable case and could do tremendous harm to the police community. This charge certainly could make police hesitant in a life-threatening situation because of lack of support by the district attorney. It has bothered me the lack of apparent judgment exhibited by the DA's office in recent cases. In the past month, there have been at least three acquittals in cases where it could strongly be argued that the cases should never have been brought. Um, In the Carrie Heller case, she was found not guilty after two hours of deliberations. The foundation of the prosecution was that there could be no other way a child died except by homicide, but there was not a firm cause of death. The defense put up a plausible theory of accident. In the Randall Drescher case, he was acquitted after 20 minutes of deliberations. Mr. Drescher was being beaten and shot uh, and shot the man beating him. Again, the judgment in issuing this case should have been questioned. 
Your analysis of the Hagen-Brown case is totally on point. An officer is chasing an armed man carrying a gun. The officer tells the man to stop, and he keeps running. The man turns towards the officer with the gun, and the officer acts appropriately and fires at the defendant twice in a little over one second. It is obvious to any reasonable person that the officer was acting properly. Um, and again, I, I, I don't want to go into more details because I don't want to... I don't want to identify this person because he she's asked me not to do that. But th- this 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 is an undercovered story. It is the lack of judgment going on in the Milwaukee County District Attorney's Office. And that starts at the top. John Chisholm, who is making bad prosecutive decisions for, I don't know, political reasons, pressure that he feels from certain people in the community, whatever. He wants to be the media darling. He wants to be loved. He wants to be, okay, I'm not a guy that's going to come out and I'm going to do this. But he is, in my opinion, neglecting his basic responsibility and the oath of office he takes. And it, I tell you, the, the problem with this prosecution of Hagen Brown is it sends a message to every Milwaukee police officer and every law enforcement officer in Milwaukee County that the district attorney does not have your back. And it's, look, I understand that there's bad cops, and bad cops deserve to be prosecuted. But, you know, you, you don't have, you when you do not have the facts, when you do not have a reasonably provable case, and you don't, Ed Flynn knew this was not a reasonably provable case, all sorts of other people in the legal community knew it wasn't, and John Chisholm decided to bark this dog into court regardless, and he ends up losing, and there's no accountability at all. There's nobody in the local media, at least the newspaper, they're not analyzing these various cases and these bad decisions being made on a regular basis by the Milwaukee County District Attorney's Office, and it is justice that ends up getting a black eye. And I'll tell you, it's not its not just me who thinks that. It's a lot of people in the law enforcement community um, who recognize this. And, I mean, I understand there, there's no accountability. Chisholm's a Democrat. He's going to get elected overwhelmingly as much as he wants. But these cases do incredible, incredible harm. And the district attorney should be held accountable for those matters. Okay, let's switch gears. Uh, this is the time of the show we do this this time, this segment, every every Thursday. We kind of put aside the heavy lifting. We stop talking about 13-year-olds that are stealing cars and idiotic decisions by the district attorney to issue prosecutions in cases that don't deserve them and whatever silliness is going on in Washington and health care. There's all sorts of time for that. I call this Pop Culture Corner. We talk about some fun stuff, some lighter stuff to kind of send you off on your Thursday afternoon. Um, today... And sometimes it's food, sometimes it's cars, sometimes it's TV, sometimes it's sports. Uh, today we go back to one of my favorites, which is movies. Daniel Day-Lewis, um, who is renowned. Um, some people think he, he's the, the greatest actor, you know, ever. Um, he's been in The Last of Mohicans, The Age of Innocence, Name of the Father, Gangs of New York, won um, Oscars for My Left Foot, Lincoln, he was outstanding in Lincoln, and There Will Be Blood, which was, I thought, a very overrated movie. But he's won three Oscars. Um, he's, a matter of fact, uh, the only Oscar to ever, uh, only actor to ever win Best Oscar, Best only actor to ever win the Best Actor Oscar. Say that three times fast, three times, um, for... Um, my left foot, Lincoln, and there will be blood. He announced earlier this week that he is retiring. Um, he's sixty-two years old, sixty-two, and he said that you know he, he's done. He's done sixty years old. Said he's done acting. 
All right, so so he's retiring. But there's no question that he created a number of really, really memorable characters. The, the character in Gangs of New York was incredibly memorable. Um, clearly, there, there will be blood. And, of course, Lincoln. I thought using, and whether he's going to retire or not, really, you know, who knows? Lots of people retire and they come back. But I thought this was a good launching point for perhaps a, a, a fun segment. I was thinking of some of the characters that he created, Um I thought it would be fun to just have you think through your repertoire of movies. What is what is the most significant? What is the most memorable movie character ever? Not the best actor, but the most memorable character. When you think of the whole universe of movies out there, is there one character that kind of comes to mind as being, man, that that's the one. That, that I just think of. Actually, for me, there is one. But what's yours? 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Your most memorable movie, the most memorable movie character ever in, I guess, tribute to Daniel Day-Lewis, who's one of the greatest actors ever, the announcement that he's retiring. We are actually, starting right now, we are live streaming this on Facebook Live, uh, facebook.com slash 620 WTMJ. We've got the lights turned on in the studio, so you can participate via Facebook Live. You can also give me a call or email me, 414-799-1620 is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Go with your first instinct. That is always my advice. The most memorable movie character ever um, I've got mine. What's yours? We discuss next. It's 1143. 1147, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Okay, live streaming on Facebook as well. Most memorable movie character ever. Let's try to get as, to as many as we can. John in Mequon. John, good morning. Good morning. I have to say, without question, the first one that came to my mind is Gregory Peck as Atticus Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, it isn't, isn't that incredible? Uh, I mean, you know, I, I'm a, a matter of fact, I just reread To Kill a Mockingbird within the last six months or so. But, uh, yeah, when that, when, whenever I, I read that book, you, you think of, <laughs> you know, you, you, you think of, uh, you think of Gregory Peck. He in, is indelibly, he is that character. Absolutely. I mean, just the, the quiet courage that he has and, you know, somewhat being the epitome of decency and doing what's right in, in a very challenging environment, and obviously his you know fatherly tenderness is just very good life lessons that uh, many of us could learn from. It's amazing. Now, thanks for the call. Most indelible movie character. Okay, Facebook Live. Ted writes, Peter Sellers is Inspector Clouseau. Mark writes, no contest. John Wayne, Rooster Cogburn. Um, yeah, true grit. Uh, let's see. Uh, Lori writes, a Han Solo. Yeah, um, Han Solo. All right, let's talk to Kevin in Waukesha. Kevin, good morning. The most memorable movie character ever. Good morning, Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump, yeah. um, Boy, Tom Hanks, Tom Hanks really owned that character, didn't he? Yeah, he sure did. When you said that right away, the first thing that came right in my mind was Forrest Gump. Life is life is a box of chocolates. No, Forrest Gump. Another one of those. uh, Again, before I saw the movie, I remember seeing the title Forrest Gump, and I'm thinking, what the heck is that movie Forrest Gump about? David in Sussex. David, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. Um, 
so far they've been a good uh, yeah pick, but I have to say Jack Nicholson and the Shining. Oh um, yeah, the um, right here's Johnny. That's a, that movie continues to creep me out. <laughs> it does, and yeah, it'll, he has a lasting role that'll on forever in that one. Uh, got it. No four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I want to try to get to as many as I possibly can. Um, the Jimmy Stewart character in It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, they, well, I mean, it's a wonderful we 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 did that for uh, you know we did that for a holiday play this year. Let's talk to Dan in Greenfield. Dan, you're on six twenty WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. Um, first one that came to my mind is probably one of the most iconic villains of all time, Darth Vader. Yes. Can't, re- can't really see his face. Can't really see the acting, but uh, it's definitely made an impression on me from when I was five years old when I first saw it. Um. Yeah. No. There's. There's. Right. No. Thank. You can't argue with that. I mean, Darth Darth Vader universal just a, a universal type of villain vince in sheboygan venture on 620 wtmj good morning good morning most memorable john movie Blutarski. character oh john blutarski bluto from my favorite all-time movie animal house absolutely what an icon yeah you know gone too soon too i mean belushi it's you know, it's just what right, but Animal House. I mean, that was that was really his breakout role. And of course, you know, I'm, I'm glad you call it because it gives me a chance to acknowledge um, Flounder, Stephen First, who died at the age of 63 this week. That also is very sad. Yeah, and a very now the, the the Flounder character, and that you know Stephen First, he went on to do other things. But he, he and for the rest of this guy's career, you looked at him, and at least to me, if you're a fan of Animal House, and who's not a fan of Animal House, he he was always going to be he he was always going to be the the Flounder character. Um, yeah, um, let's see the most memorable movie character ever, uh, Dennis in Milwaukee. Dennis, you're on six twenty WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. Um, that has to be Rick Blaine. Oh, Humphrey Bogart in Casablanca. I just I just read a book on the making of Casablanca that just came out, and I, um, I I I love that movie. Actually, I mean, I said Animal House is my favorite, but to tell you the truth, um, I mean, Casablanca is my favorite. Animal House would be in the top five. But right, it's it's all about loyalty and integrity, and it's. It's really a good book. It, it, no, it, right, and it, it's amazing. It's just it's an amazing film. No, and it's an amazing right. character as well. Let's talk to Dave in Waukesha. Dave, the most memorable movie character is it has to be Daniel Day Lewis's Lincoln. I mean, <sighs> coincidentally, obviously, it's sad, it's sad to hear he's retiring. But uh, um, you know, had he even not said that, that would have been my pick because. You know, I've watched that over and over. He is, right. he was Lincoln. Right. You know, I, it's, it's, I actually, okay, and this is kind of heresy. Th- thanks for the call. I think, actually, I think Daniel Day-Lewis is somewhat overrated. And uh, easy for me to say, the guy's won three Best Actor uh, uh, nominations. I, I, I didn't get why people like that, that There Will Be Blood movie. I just, I didn't, I didn't get it. I thought the um, Gangs of New York was way, way overdone. I mean, he was great, and I, I love the last movie. I, I mean, I'm not saying he's a bad actor. I love a lot of the work he did. I just think some of the stuff is overrated. But I will tell you, Lincoln, I mean, you look at that, you watch that movie. You know, it's a couple years old now. You watch that movie, and you see Lincoln. You don't see Daniel Day-Lewis. Let's talk to Larry in Brookfield. Larry, good morning. You're at 620 WTMJ. Good morning, Jeff. I can't believe no one has said this yet, but it's got to be Marlon Brando as the Godfather. Vito Corleone, that character, huh? You bet. Yeah, it's you bet. well. There, I mean, thanks. There's, there's, there, there's no doubt. And Brando almost, uh, Brando almost didn't get that part. 
um, Brando, his career was kind of on the downslide, and the studio didn't want him, and he had. To, I think he even had to audition for it, as I recall. But yeah, he he became Vito Corleone. There's no question. That is an amazing, um, memorable character. Let's talk to Katie in Burlington. Katie, good morning. You're at six twenty WTMJ. Good morning. I first thing came in my mind was Scarlett O'Hara, played oh. by Vivian Lee, Gone with the Wind. It's, it's a, obviously an epic movie, but that was one of the most, if not the most sought of for female lead roles in a movie ever, I would say. And here comes this British actress right. who made that character, that Southern Val hers, and played it in such a way right. that this character you could have hated, you actually felt for and, and rooted for. So I, I think her right. performance, she will forever be Scarlett O'Hara. Oh, oh, absolutely. Right. As God is my witness, I'll never be hungry again. Roger in Greenfield. Roger, good morning. Good morning. Most memorable character. Hannibal Lecter. That's mine. Yep. <laughs> you know, Anthony Hopkins, I, I actually, I watched uh, The Silence of the Lambs the other night again, and it's just, and, and actually, he was a guy that they, they didn't want to cast either. They, they didn't think he was right for the role, this kind of obscure British actor, and I, I mean, all these choices that we're talking about are great, but man, I'm telling you, Anthony, that Hannibal Lecter character, you want to talk about, I don't care how many times you see that movie, he still creeps you out. He does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm. Thanks to no, I'm, I'm. When I, when I was thinking about this, it was this. We got a lot of great ones on our, our Facebook Live as well. Heath Ledger as the Joker. That was an incredible performance as well. Holly writes, "Let's go female." Scarlett O'Hara, just like Katie was saying. Um, Julie writes, "Patrick Swayze in Ghost." Um, yeah, that character. Um, <laughs> let's see, Corey. A movie I love, Milton in Office Space. I love that Milton character. I'm not sure that would be the most memorable movie character, um, but like Darth Vader. But Sir Hannibal Lecter, that's the one that still still goes uh, gets my attention. Let's see, um, Clark Gable, um, Rhett Butler in Gone with the Wind, Henry uh, Hill, the character from Goodfellows, uh, the the Maverick character out of Top Gun. Lot of just a lot of great choices. Um, if you want to continue the conversation, we do it on Facebook Live. You can see a replay of this segment, but also continue to participate um, as well. It's just go to um, facebook.com slash 620 WTMJ.